Hello, we are the Makers of History, with me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. That's nice. Oh, he's just, that was perfect timing. You did that on purpose, didn't you? That's, you know, we tried to make a theme tune, and that's our theme tune. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah now I've got a uh, Mordige, I think it's pronounced. It's like uh, from some microbrewery. Oh, that looks nice. Show me that bottle. So can, you just showed me a bottle there. Show me the label as well. Yeah, I'm trying to. Oh, Mon- Ooh, that looks fancy. 11%. Yeah. So 11%? This, no, 11 degrees. Oh. So it's 4.5%. Um, but yeah, this one's like an unfiltered, unpasteurised one from some microbrewery. No idea where. Um, yeah. Happy times with my hipster beer. Good shit, man. Yeah. How much that set you back? Uh, 80 crowns, which is two and a half quid, three quid for a litre. Which is a litre of it. Nice. That's expensive by check standards. It's expensive by check Splashing standards. Splashing the cash there. Yeah. yeah. Like, I always get excited when they have, like, the fancy beer. Because it, like, has to be kept in the fridge and stuff because it's um, literally, like, fresh off the lines production and it lasts a matter of weeks or days. And whenever I see it, I'm like, oh, that looks nice. Too but then it's all, man. But it's, like, three times the price of the normal stuff, so. Yeah. But when you're drinking the normal stuff all the time, you want something a bit different. Yeah, you've got to mix, mix it up. It up. Man, you're so sport for beer options. It's unreal. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Very nice. What have you got? I'm on Adam Southwold again. Ease up IPA. It's what I had uh, last time. Um, the, the... I got two bottles left of it, I think. Adam Southwold, remember? Yeah. <laughs> the one known monks. Hobbit adventurer. <laughs> remember the monks? I remember the monks. <laughs> you remember the monks in style, didn't you? Uh... Yeah, no. What was your debut? We didn't. I felt like you purposely were missing out. I know you died, Ben. No, we spoke um, previous to this, and I thought maybe you were saving something <laughs> for the podcast. But that seems like a mistake. That you yeah, no. Um, day was fine. Yesterday we had an odyssey getting home. Um, so I went to Prague and like had went out for some drinks in Prague, and getting the train back, and it's like okay. So the train's coming back and it'll be back home at like 11.02, something okay. like that. Fine. My bus is at 11.07. Fine. Tom's train was late, oh, of course. Bugger. So I was sprinting for the bus, already gone. Bugger. Next one is more than an hour away, so well after midnight. Oh. Yeah, so I was like, oh, okay, fuck that. So then I'm, I'm presented with a choice. There is a taxi rank or... There are like, uh, you know, the electric scooters, like you tap to ride and you... Yeah. So I was like, the taxis are expensive. Fuck it, I'll get the scooter. <clears throat> that sounds like a mistake. You. This was a mistake. On a scooter. To be fair, I've done it before and I've done it when I'm absolutely fucking steaming. <laughs> <laughs> you should have admitted to that. Uh, the check is so, I'm gonna track you down now. Yeah, <laughs> scooting. <laughs> hey, it's the drunk scooter. <laughs> so okay, I've only had like two or three beers, fine. So I get on the scooter, going along, and there's kind of like a in- little industrial zone between like the station and where I live. And when I get into that, suddenly like the speed is being limited. Like you go from like twenty kilometers an hour to like five. 
and you can feel there's something like blocking the acceleration. And a little yellow. As you went past where? Like again to the site like, industrial zone. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? So I start googling, can't That's find true. anything. Eventually find that the little yellow light is like if you're in a restricted speed zone. So like, okay, okay, there's train tracks and stuff. Fine. Kind of get past the industrial zone to like the forest beyond that between that and where I live. Then my phone starts going mental, vibrating notifications. No go zone. And then it pops up a map that it hasn't shown me before, which is like the centre of the city is fine. Then there's this yellow belt that I've just gone through and now I'm in like no red zone. Oh, fuck yeah. So I'm like, okay, fuck, I've stayed this back then. All the way. Uh, Oh, that was the next one. Like, okay, I have to go back to like a designated parking yeah. zone, and my options were all the way back or into a different like suburb and leave it outside of a theatre or something. So it's like, okay, that's marginally shorter than oh. all the way back. But at this point, like, you know, when I took the film, I was like, okay, this is a 15 minute journey. We are now 40 minutes into said fucking journey. <clears throat> took it back, ended up walking like through the woods. Got home somewhere like half past midnight, like it's below freezing. I've got no hats, I've got my scarf wrapped over my head like fucking E.T. <laughs> my God, man, I can't believe you get that secret from me till now. <laughs> <laughs> we spent last night for hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were too embarrassed, but right? yeah. Yeah, that one to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's sick, mate. <laughs> Have I'm you not... been? Yeah, been a while, man. Work's been good and busy. I've got this chest infection. I'll send you early one night. So if I'll, I'm trying my hardest not to, but I may cough every now and again because I'm still getting over a little chesty chest or something. Um, but no, yeah. I've been doing a lot, man. Pretty good, to be fair. I'm going on holiday. Friday, so tomorrow's my Friday basically. That's my last work Big family holiday. Twenty of us, I think. Yeah, I think. Like all the cousins and that. So that'll be wicked. Just a weekend away with all my cousins in a big mansion. And you, you are such a hillbilly, like <laughs> you and Cletus and all your cousins piling. In. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are basically. Yeah, yeah, basically what it's like. So there's uh, an uncle and aunt, an uncle, mum and dad, like all my cousins, my sister, all their kids and that. Yeah, it'll be wicked, man. Be a good time. Looking forward to it. Down by the creek, wrestling the catfish. Yeah, yeah. We're not kissing cousins. We, we can't be, because some of us are double cousins, remember? <laughs> <laughs> This is the official podcast of the Habsburg dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go, bruv. That's my story for you. <laughs> uh, well, then, what are we gonna, what, where are we at? It's fair right to ask you what episode we were on earlier. On, <laughs> so. where, where do we go? So you're going to have to recap now. So yeah, so last time we finished then with um, Hitler's takeover and of Czechoslovakia. So, where first first of all he sliced off the German parts of Czechoslovakia and then finished off the remains of the Czech part. Um, well, Czechoslovakia's allies, Britain and France, sat back and watched it happen, basically. Yeah. 
And of course, we saw also the ramping up of violence against the Jews in Kristallnacht as well. So, where are we getting into this? So, the end of 1938, start of 1939. There is now a general acceptance, even amongst the most ideologically blinded Nazis and Hitler himself, that war with the West is coming and it is inevitable. So, remember, like Hitler. He was down with the idea of fighting the French, but he didn't want to fight the British. He didn't think he was going to have to, because, it, like as we keep saying, he interpreted the world through his like you know racial conspiracy theory lenses. Yeah. So to him, this was like a bitter pill. Okay, we have to fight the British. Obviously, Britain in the nineteen thirties were talking about a global empire with a huge navy, the biggest in the world. If Hitler's going to carry out an invasion of the British Isles, this means an expansion of the Kriegsmarine. And they come up with what's called the Z-Plan. So, we've said previously, like, in the, you know, the rearmament that the naval building has been ramping up, this is going to take it to a new level. There will be huge new shipyards built in Germany. The island of Rutgen in the Baltic is going to be hollowed out from the inside to make a, like, underground naval base because Hitler is a fucking Bond villain at this point. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit of a Bond villain, mate, <laughs> that is. Underground naval base full of sharks. I bet they had <laughs> sharks in there. And you found them feeding handsbricks to them. <laughs> um, so they're going to have six new supersized battleships. Germany having zero at the moment. And they're going to have 250 U-boats to back this up. Submarines. In, yes, exactly. The plan is, when it's completed by 1948, there will be just shy of 800 vessels in the German Navy. That's quite the plan. Yeah, so this is a huge representation, you know, representing a huge investment of uh, forces, resources, everything into, like, you know, ships need lots of steel, it's a huge commitment. Like we talked about last episode, they're already sending 20 of the 21 tons of steel that comes into the country. Straight to the uh, army. Straight to the army, so... So... This is the thing, Germ like Hitler has all of these plans and they all get increasingly ambitious and fucking grandiose and they're all competing with each other. So now the navy is given number one priority in January of thirty eight and that's okay. building up. So everything focused on naval production come first. The Luftwaffe, not to be left out, has also set a new production target, and their plan is to have twenty one thousand seven hundred and fifty aircraft by nineteen forty two. Now, well, to put that in context, when the Nazis came into power in 1933, they had 200 aircraft. So, nice. yeah, it's like off-the-scale levels of expansion going on. That is mega. But I, don't, I just don't understand where any of the raw materials or labour are coming from for this expansion. Something's got to give. Yeah, so this this is the thing. like To do these like massive plans... There has to be constant trade-offs and there has to be ever-increasing government control. So one of the ways they're going to achieve this is, what you say about the Labour, there will be a central organisation of Labour going forward. And the first step is that the entire population is going to be put into a national index to be managed by the SS. Fuck me, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I think if there's anyone that you want not to be having all of your details... Yeah, it's the SS. You don't want them calling you up in the middle of the night. And the plan is, you know, 
when the inevitable war happens, the SS will be able to take people from their jobs and assign the labour to where it's needed. Um, Why the just, SS? Because they're the most ideologically loyal. Like you, this is Hitler moving aside from like the, uh, you know, the organisations. The they're literally the baddies. <laughs> <laughs> it's him sidestepping, like you know, the civil service, the bureaucracy, and just going pure Nazi around it. We're having to deal yeah. with it else. All construction in Germany, except for Hitler's personal projects, is cancelled. So we already said a few years back they'd cancelled the ability to get a mortgage as a steel-saving measure. Yeah. Now, anything to be built has to have Hitler's personal say-so. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also say, like, more and more stuff getting piled on Hitler personally. Like, not that we feel bad for Hitler and his work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. But you think as a leader... <laughs> My that rights. You know, he's getting involved in the minutiae of everything and, like, just loading that much strain onto himself. You can see why that drug use kicked up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All factories in Germany were going to be subject to frequent government inspections about their efficiency. Are they wasteful of raw materials to try and, you know, save every possible ounce of whatever? And they planned for a readiness for war by 1942. So when they set the government budget in 1939, Hitler took another step in terms of the complete dictatorship of Germany. And that is that um, up until that point, the Reichsbank, so like the, the Bank of England equivalent, had oversight over the budget, right? So the government yeah. proposes a budget and it has to be okayed by the bank. From now on, that will no longer be a thing. It's Hitler's decision if the budget passes or not. So they're taking away the last kind of measure of civilian oversight and control. One of the features included in the budget, and this is how they're going to pay for things, is that suppliers to the government will be required to accept 40% of payment, at least, per purchase. In uh, They accept payment in tax credits, not in cash. Oh. So it's like, you know, if you're a business, it's like, okay, very nice we get a tax rebate on tax that we haven't yet paid, but we have to, in in real terms, we're like, you know, subsidising the government because yeah. we're paying for the resources. And they definitely would have seen that. Yeah. It's like, you know, at least 40% of payments. So you, you think the smaller your firm is, the more you can be, you know, hit with the fucking short end of the stick. Like, okay, 90% of your payment for this is going to be in tax credit. Yeah. And that's already on top of a bunch of swindles and shortcuts anyway, like we talked about before with the the Meepo bills. Yeah. That's already going on, so there's already a fiddle going on. Yeah. And now there's another <laughs> fiddle going on. They're just piling a parallel them. fiddle. Fiddle for a fiddle. There's more fiddles <laughs> here than Ireland's. <laughs> more fiddling than at a BBC studio in the 70s. <laughs> But yeah, so you see like the kind of the the house of cards that the whole thing has become by this point. So, you know right at the start you were saying that Hitler want, thought he was going to have the alliance with Great Britain, well, British Empire, mm. and that all that went through. So, what's he thinking on the political level now? And then what's, has he got, he ain't got no friends, has he? Yeah, so he's whole like racial vision for the future has kind of been turned on its head now that he's 
facing whether he's got to fight the British. Um, so his plan now is to form an alliance with Poland, which kind of, yeah. Hang on, when's this? 1939. Okay. His plan is to ally with the Poles against the British and French and later against the Soviets. <laughs> so aside from everything in like Nazi ideology and everything that Hitler's written in Mein Kampf, <laughs> now we've turned all that on its head. Uh, you might be surprised to hear this, but the Poles were having fucking none of that shit. Yeah, I can, yeah. <laughs> Actually, having mentioned Mein Kampf, that's one thing I wanted to mention. Uh, we keep talking about the second book. Um, yeah, yeah. So to kind of bring it back for anyone joining at this point, our main source for this series is The Wages of Destruction by Adam Tooze, and he draws heavily on Hitler's unpublished second book, which talks a lot about his plans uh, with regard to the United States. And one of the things we hadn't really been able to solve is why that book had never been published. So when Hitler first tried to tried to release it, his publisher was like, no, 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 this is going to hurt the profits from Mein Kampf. But I never understood why it was never published after that. Because like, he died? No, no, this was like in the 20s. Okay. Um, so, I mean, like, during the Nazi regime, Mein Kampf was everywhere. Like, when you got married people were presented with a copy of Mein Kampf. Like, Hitler made fucking bank off of Mein Kampf. So, basically, Hitler is a great novelist. <laughs> it's it's not a fantastic book. I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, <laughs> so, this is what I wondered, is why was the book never published once the, like, you know, the dictators in power can force you to read the book? One of our listeners actually looked into this for us, and what he found was basically that a, a lot of the internal domestic stuff in the second book is Hitler complaining about the conservative elites, which are the people that brought him to power in 1933. Yeah. So he would have had to rewrite the book he to be able to publish it. Drugs as well. And he's too busy doing drugs. You didn't and... tell me that a listener came on to us. That's yeah, we, we. I thought about it came on to us. It wasn't that far. Oh, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we finally succeeded in getting a Twitter interaction, so thank you for uh, looking that up for us. Oh, no, so who was it? What's his name? Should give him a play. To be fair, it's my mate Dan from school. Oh. <laughs> so cheers, Dan. Thanks for looking at that for us, mate. Yeah, cheers, Dan. Appreciate it, bruv. Um, yeah, so to get back to it again. So obviously, like, the Poles are having none of this idea of aligning with Hitler. They understand completely that Germany is an immediate danger to Poland. Um, a thing to mention, to have in your head when you're listening, is that Germany then was a bit bigger than it is now. It extended into the western parts of what's now Poland. And especially important is, if you think of the map, and there's that little bit of Russia that's in the Baltic, kind of cut off from the rest of Russia, this was an area of Germany at the time called East Prussia. And East Prussia was separated from the rest of Germany by a little bit of Poland. What was that? Um, basically, like along the Baltic coast, it was mostly German populated, which is why it stayed with Germany. But when Poland was recreated uh, at the Treaty of Versailles, the Allies wanted Poland to have access to the sea. So they had an extra bit of land that was kind of attached to Poland around Danzig, Gdansk today. 
and this was a real point of annoyance and shame for the Nazis, is Danzig was a German city by any reasonable measure. But Danzig had been given this kind of awkward international free city status, and the land around it was handed to Poland to ensure that Poland could access the sea. Oh. But for German nationalists, retaking Danzig, retaking the Danzig Corridor was very important. Well, it's getting a land connection to the rest of it as well, which is... Yeah, exactly. Well, like, all it? of that East Prussia and, like, the Prussian aristocracy were very powerful and important. I forget that, obviously, I've seen the map. Mm. <laughs> I know what it looks like at this point in time, but not everyone necessarily would. Like, it's really interesting if you do, like, look at a map of... Europe in 1930 it looks different yeah and then look again in 1910 yeah it looks different again and <laughs> there's a lot more Germany <laughs> yeah and a lot bigger Austria <laughs> yeah so I mean it's I mean like this is definitely something I want to do a series specifically about as like the way Europe's map changed between the wars because like you had these very big old empires which broke apart and then these new states trying to find their place in the world. Yeah. Anyway, come back to topic. So the Poles are having none of this. The UK, for their part, are looking for allies because they realise now, after especially after Hitler's second go at the Czechs, like the the slicing off of the Sudetenland, people could just about stomach it because the Sudetenland was inhabited by Germans for the most part. The rest of Czechoslovakia was not. It was obviously majority Czech, the area that was annexed. There was no longer a, a justification like, oh, we're just bringing Germans back to the Reich. This was clearly imperial expansion. Mm. So the UK starts looking for allies, and the, where they look is to the Soviet Union. Which, again, surprising to us, like the capitalist, globe-spanning empire of, of the UK <laughs> aligning with the, you know, the, the communist Soviet Union. Yeah. Now, this alliance was never going to work out in in likelihood because the Soviets also had ambitions in Eastern Europe. The Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania were independent. The Soviets had their eyes on that. They had their eyes on Romania, on parts of Czechoslovakia, on parts of uh, Finland. So this was never going to be able to work out. But the UK were sincerely trying it and... From the Nazi perspective, this is a genuine threat being attacked on two sides by two different ideological enemies. Um, at the same time, in the beginning of 1939, President Roosevelt, Roosevelt in the US has a State of the Union address that American presidents do, and he makes a lot of it about calling out German aggression in Europe. So for Hitler, again, everything comes through the lens of Jewish racial conspiracy, right? So to him, the fact that the imperialist British and the capitalist Americans and the communist Soviets are aligning isn't because Hitler's a dick and has pissed everybody off. It's because the Jews controlling everything behind the scenes are coming together <laughs> and controlling everything. Like th This is a fundamental problem for like Hitler as a leader, is that he does not assess the world rationally because everything comes through this fucked up conspiracies where the Jews control everything and mm. are trying to get him. Um... So he just cannot make rational decisions because it just doesn't fit into his understanding of the world. So, into 1939, then, we are barreling towards a war. And if we just kind of take a look at where things are in the summer, 
you would not, if you were placing bets, expect that things are going to play out the way they're going to. The British economy on its own is roughly equal to Germany's. With France added on, that's a significant advantage. Then you include the rest of the British Empire and the United States, and it's like, there's no contest. Like, there literally is no contest. In 1939, Germany is spending 23% of the total production of Germany on its military. France is spending 17%, the UK 12%, and the USA only 2%. So you think Germany's already reaching the limits of where it can go. The other countries can catch up to this, and like if the USA is going to catch up, like that's huge, huge amounts of production that can be brought online to counter Germany. So from Hitler's perspective, the long-term outlook is not good. The longer he waits, and the more that the Western powers' economies mobilise, the worse things are going to be for Germany, right? But, in the summer of 1939, Hitler has the most prepared, most mobilised army in Europe. He has the best air force in Europe, the most modern aircraft. If you believe that war is inevitable, and you have advantages now and you believe in the long term you're going to be at this advantage, better that we start now. The longer we wait, the other countries will catch up, they'll build more advanced aircraft, you're going to lose your advantages. So in the summer of 1939, Hitler gives the order to prepare for war with Poland. Now, you remember when he prepared for war with Czechoslovakia? <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm just, I'm just laughing because literally <laughs> the same year he was thinking about befriending him. And he's like, oh, no, fuck it, we'll go to war with him instead. It's, everything is so inconsistent with the Nazis. So you remember when he was planning his war with Czechoslovakia, like his regime was on the brink of collapse, like... Other top Nazis, including Goering, believed they were going to have a war. The army was getting ready to overthrow him. If the Allies had gone to war in thirty-eight for Czechoslovakia, the army probably would have removed Hitler anyway. Yeah. This time, no opposition. Because Hitler had said, we will get Czechoslovakia, and everyone else had said he's wrong, and then he was right, it discredited everybody else. There was no longer a viable opposition in Germany. So in the summer, he's looking for alliances then with his second choice, which is Italy and Japan. Kind of surprising when we think of how the war played out, but Germany was not yet allied properly with either Italy or Japan. Japan specifically ruled out an alliance in '39. They were not interested. wonder what that was. Their goals just didn't align. Yeah. Like, Japan is... the world as well. Yeah, they're on the other side of the world, and Japan's immediate concern is defeating China. The Japanese yeah, already... they are already at war with them, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. exactly. They've already been fighting in China for years at this point. The last thing they want is to also then Get start a war... Into something else, yeah. Exactly, which everyone else would think Germany is going to lose. Mm. So, in on 24th of August, Germany concluded a secret agreement with the Soviet Union. exactly so Germany's number one ideological enemy you know the Nazis fundamentally opposed to communism believe Slavs are inferior humans planning for the Lebensraum to conquer Soviet territory and they've just concluded not an alliance but a non-aggression pact and a secret deal that they will split Europe between them I can't tell you exactly how many years it is but I think it's maybe two years prior to this 
They have like a secret. He, um, doesn't he do like an anti-communist meeting yeah. or something? Yeah, the anti-comintern part. Yeah, the anti-comintern, like a whole <laughs> organisation that he founded, invited other countries to, to be like anti-communist. Yeah, so just no consistency and like any like idea about principles and stuff. Fucking <laughs> straight out the window. The significant thing for this for the Nazis is this was going to open up all of the raw materials of the Soviet Union, the biggest country on the planet. One third of Germany's imported oil would come from the Soviet Union. Oh. So, again, to just kind of reinforce the point, the British and French had been appeasing Germany in the, in the 1930s, right? They'd been letting Hitler do stuff. The reason they were doing this is not because they thought they would lose a war. The reason they were doing it is because they thought that they would win a war, but it would weaken them. And the only countries that would benefit would be the Soviets, the Americans, and the Japanese. For anyone who is a conventional like political thinker, an alignment of the British, French, and Americans is obvious. But for Hitler, it's completely counterintuitive, because he thinks that... Britain and the US are naturally opposed because, you know, everyone's trying to dominate the world. That's what the racial war is all about. Of course they are. Hmm. You can only perceive the world in this way. So it, it's Hitler doesn't have a realistic understanding of the situation of Germany. He believes there is an existential danger to the existence of Germany because of this Jewish conspiracy, this escalating danger of the, the United States, the Soviet Union, the British attacking... The only option for Germany, the only logical and rational choice, is strike first. And so, on the 1st of September 1939, Germany invades Poland. The UK issues an ultimatum and to Germany to withdraw. And when Germany does not do so, the UK and France declare war on Germany on the 3rd of September 1939, beginning the European phase of the Second World War. So the Poles, um, you know, obviously defend themselves from the attack. Germany stages like one of the world's most blatant like false flag attempts to try and justify the invasion, which fools precisely nobody. Um, what was it? What was they the day before the invasion, they attacked one of their own radio stations with some like captured Polish uniforms on and stuff. But it's blatantly obvious, like. Obviously, Poland would pick this fight at this situation. Yeah. So the Poles defend themselves um, with kind of heroic effort, but the reality is they are hopelessly outnumbered, nearly two to one. In terms of modern tanks, they are outnumbered ten to one. And even better for Poland is just over two weeks after the initial invasion on the 17th of September, the Soviet Union joins in following their agreement with the Nazis to split Europe and invade Poland from the east. So, Poland is kind of trapped between these two powers. There's kind of some mythology about, like, the Polish war. Uh, there's, you know, stories of Polish cavalry charging uh, German tanks with lances. This is an exaggeration. Like, Poland had cavalry divisions... But that was more like infantrymen who moved around on horses then got off the horse to fight. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely a thing. They definitely were 
horse mounted cavalry facing panzer divisions they just weren't gonna, charging them yeah themselves. I was going to say why would you charge at a tank on a horse with a sword or lance because you need to not do anything you need yeah no it's, it's it's just a story that gets repeated okay. I think for people that don't understand what cavalry division means in the context yeah so although the Poles fight valiantly to defend themselves it's kind of a foregone conclusion how this is going to go and ends pretty quickly in a few weeks this is not to say that like Germany had everything its own way though, and again, our mental image comes from German propaganda. So I mean, like if if you're thinking of what a German invasion at the start of the war looks like, what do you what do you picture? Yeah, like tanks rolling in, isn't it? Yeah, tanks yeah, and mobilized. Obviously, I know better now, but you'd think tanks like mobilized infantry and trucks, like yeah. fast moving. Uh, half tracks, half tracks with machine guns dumping off troops, like fast moving encirclements, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Which is completely a propaganda image. Vast majority of German troops marched on their feet, they moved via train to the jumping off point, and they marched on their feet. <laughs> majority of kit is moved by horses. Uh, it's very small parts of the German army are motorized and mechanized. In terms of tanks, like the vast majority of tanks that Germany uses in the invasion of Poland are Panzer One and Panzer Two. So tanks that most people have never seen and never heard of. These aren't you, the tanks that you you see pictures of. Yeah. So you think of the Panzer Two, like you think it's a tank that's its main weapon is a auto cannon. So it's more comparable to something like um, like the weapons on like something like a Bradley or a BMP today, rather than a tank gun like an oversized machine gun, and the Panzer One literally has some rifle caliber machine guns as weapons. So, they, on a, like, you know, tank-by-tank basis, the German stuff is not great. And it also exposes other weaknesses within the military. They're running very low on ammunition already, after just a few weeks of combat. (laughs) And although, you know, they have these panzer divisions that have had all the resources provided to them, they've been drilled and trained and had the best recruits and so on the majority of the army is made up by reserve infantry divisions and those have not performed especially well, they've had real trouble at times breaking down Polish resistance and you know, in the course of a matter of weeks, one in four German tanks is lost, even knocked out or broken down that's a massive amount yeah for what Germany knows was the easy part, and they are now facing what everyone is convinced is the best army in the world, the French army. So, in after after the uh, success against the Poles, then so we're into the autumn of nineteen thirty nine. Obviously, like the weather is starting to turn, and so there's no movement on the front French German border at this bottom. Very little, very little. Very little. The French make a very small incursion into Germany, then immediately retreat. The French strategy is all about kind of hiding behind their fortresses. They have this fortress line along the German border called the Maginot Line. And the idea for the French is that they will defend the Maginot Line and the Germans, to avoid like charging into this huge defensive net, will go around it, which means fighting in Belgium. People criticise Maginot saying like the Germans are, they went round it. That's what it was supposed to do. The idea being, then when the fighting happens and everything's getting wrecked and you know the city's getting smashed, it's cities in Belgium getting smashed and sitting in France. 
Which is part of the reason why the Belgians didn't play along with the strategy. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, so the French did very little. This period after the defeat of Poland is often referred to as like the Phony War or the Sitzkrieg, where just nothing really happened. And there's like a perception that the war wasn't really taking place. And we've also got to think of the context. Like, we're talking to like October now, 39. The infrastructure of Europe in the in 1939 did not look like the infrastructure of Europe today. Mm. You know, there's like dirt roads, relatively few paved roads, things are much smaller and narrower. You're getting into the winter, the rain is coming in, like roads are being washed out. Carrying out like a full-scale military invasion in the autumn is going to be difficult. Mm. So there's kind of a lot of holding off to begin with and the French and the British is pretty much their plan is to sit back let the Germans come to them while their economies get online and then they'll smash the Germans because they will outproduce them Hitler is impatient he wants to have a decisive military victory within 1939 he orders general staff to um, prepare for an attack on France in November of 39 the, the army are really not convinced with this. They believe that this will be a disaster. The roads are not there. The army is not ready. They've not recovered from the Poland campaign. They have no munitions. Their tanks are out of service. The, the men are exhausted. The army chief of staff, Franz Holder, like happened in the Czechoslovakia case, they again begin plotting to overthrow Hitler. And the well advanced on their plans when one of these like many many just random coincidences kind of saves Hitler and this happens throughout Hitler's life it's kind of remarkable how many times this guy should have died and didn't is this when he got shot up in the Czech Republic uh no no this was oh is that who gets shot up in the Czech Republic that was Reinhard Heydrich oh, who yeah, was the was... highest ranking Nazi to oh, be assassinated killed in the, yeah you got yeah. killed yeah. um so Hitler has a personal meeting with his army chief of staff. Normal thing to do, right? So you're the head of the country and the head of the army having a meeting during a war on the 5th of November. In this meeting, Franz Hauder comes to believe, shit, Hitler knows about the plot. Hitler did not. He had no idea. But Hauder believes, shit, the game is up. And he kind of drops out of everything, cancels everything, destroys all the papers and backs away from this plot, which again, Hitler could very easily have been overthrown in the winter of 1939 the army is very unconvinced and they kind of they they've gone off with the instruction to prepare an invasion of france and basically what they've done is half-arsedly shitted out a, a reheating of the world war one plan so do you what do you know about the uh, german plan for world war one how Nothing. world war got started in the west okay so germany came up with a thing called the schlieffen plan and the idea of the Schlieffen plan was that basically Germany would, if you think of like Germany facing France and on the left side is Switzerland, on the right side is Belgium. Yeah. Right. So the idea was they'd put all of the weight on the right side through Belgium and do this like right hook to get to the sea and try and hook round the allied armies and cut them off from the sea. Okay. This is what Germany planned in World War One. And, of course, famously, Germany won World War I in 1914, and that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, obviously it failed. 
So the army have come up with what is clearly a reproduction of the exact same plan. Punch to the sea in Belgium and then wrap around. Yeah. If it didn't work in 1914, why is it going to work in 1939-40? Pretty clear this is not the best plan they could have come up with, but that's what they have. At the same time, though, inside of Germany, you think of what they've just kind of done. They have started a war in Europe with the major economies of Europe. What has happened to Germany as a result of this is uh, basically all of their options for imports have collapsed. Yeah, They're no longer getting anything from France or the UK, obviously. A lot of neutral countries are not trading with the Germans. There's basically a blockade of Germany, so there's no longer iron ore coming from Norway. There is almost zero copper imported to Germany. Their only source of oil is the Soviet Union. There's literally a cliff edge reduction of 80% of imports are lost. So, the economic situation is bad. The military situation is bad. Eventually, the bad weather is enough to convince Hitler, okay, we don't go for an invasion in 39. Again, if Hitler had got his way that probably would have been the end of Hitler. So, in the winter of 1939 then, so, the economy is bad, the the grand plan for attacking France has had to be cancelled. Germany's kind of flailing here. He's mad lucky, you know? He's <laughs> just saying very lucky. <laughs> you know. So there's an argument of what they're going to do. The army's economic planners, they're facing down Germany's worst-case scenario, right? A war against the British and French along the same lines as 1918. They're looking at the materials they've got available, looking at what they can get, and they say, okay, we have, if we are careful, about three years' worth of material. If we're careful with the rationing, we don't launch any attacks because that's risky and we could lose stuff, so we stay on the defensive to minimise the losses... No attacks to minimise risk. We can hold out for about three years. Problem with that is, what happens after three years? Yeah. You just collapse. Like, yeah. They are literally planning to lose. Like, planning for failure. Yeah. yeah. By not attacking, it's not going to be possible for Germany to win. And if it's not possible to win, you're planning to lose. So Hitler is having none of this bullshit. And he's like stressing, no, we take everything we have... All out production now, no matter what is the consequence. Doesn't matter if the economy collapses at home. It doesn't matter if people are starving in the streets. We must build and we must do it now. So Hitler kind of understands better Germany's international situation than the army planners. The army planners were planning to lose. Um, So, the way they're going to do this... That Plan Z we talked about, the hollowing out the island, the 790 warships, scrapped a year and a half (laughs) after it became top priority. All of that labour and production completely wasted. The shipyards they've built are going to be turned over to building U-boats, but all those battleships never be finished. Okay, yeah. Well, we knew that anyway, didn't we? (laughs) But it's again, like, just... The priority, like you can literally go from having absolute number one top priority to completely cancelled on the toss of a coin in, in yeah. Germany. The Luftwaffe would now be refocused again specifically on the task of fighting the UK. And the Luftwaffe essentially had very good PR. 
like the guys at the top, Goering and Erhard Milk, they understood Hitler very well. And that is that Hitler is a guy who, if you go in with a very good presentation and you're the last person to speak to him, you have a good chance of getting what you want. Side note, there was a guy uh, from Krupp who was notoriously good at this, a guy called Eric Cannon Muller, whose nickname was Cannon, and he kept winning, winning Hitler over for things to just build bigger and bigger massive fuck-off cannons because he was really convincing and Hitler liked the idea. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> everyone else hated this guy because he just gets, keeps wasting the resources on massive fuck-off cannons, which are very good for Krupp and not any good for anything uh, else. Uh, 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 so the Luftwaffe, to get their kind of place at the top of the table, they organise a massive air show in the middle of the war. And they break out all of the prototypes. They break out the prototype jets. They break out the rocket planes. Hitler's Full very job. impressed with this. All yep. And then the Ju-88 BDM bomber program back to number one priority again. <laughs> so it's just like yeah. no consistency at all. A bigger problem was ammunition. So we said that like a. Uh, the Wehrmacht smashed through its stockpile in the invasion of Poland. And, again, this is a thing of where we have to kind of put away that mental image of, like, the propaganda image of, like, tanks and half-tracks and shit. Germany, in 1939 into 1940, was expecting to fight a version of World War One, And so we've got to come to Hitler as a person. Hitler fought in the First World War as an infantryman. The highest military rank Hitler ever held was as a corporal. Which isn't the highest. Yeah, it's, you know, right down in the trenches, fighting people, rifle and bayonet and grenades. He'd never had a bigger view than a corporal being in charge of maybe ten men. So do you think in his head then he was thinking this was going to be like World War One? Do you think that, yeah. that's what he sort of visually saw it as being like? Yeah, definitely. And this is what Hitler had in mind. This was going to be like, you know... When, you, when you've been in the trenches first of all, I think the experiences, like the machine guns, and especially the artillery, like yeah. the constant like barrages, like you know the, the days of bombardment before an attack, that sort of just constant heavy shelling. I think that's what he went into the war expecting to see. And so he would, like, especially after the running low on stocks in Poland... He ordered a 350% increase in shells and ammunition production in the next 12 months. So he was foreseen in his head. He was like, oh, we're going to need loads and loads and loads of artillery. Yeah, exactly. He was expecting like a World War One slugging match using the big guns to you know fight their big guns and smash out again. No one is thinking they're going to use tanks and half-tracks and planes to be smashing through the front lines and yeah. fucking racing for the capital. It's like they're expecting to be slogging it out. So between the Ju-88 programme, the medium bomber, and all of this new ammunition, two-thirds of Germany's resources in the first ten months of the war were being spent on one type of plane or ammunition. Fucking hell. <laughs> what they're building for, all of this shells and ammo, is they're expecting to fight a trench war, not yeah. anything fast. Now, the kind of the economic damage the Nazis have done to Germany is starting to 
um, have an impact. And the winter of 1939 would be a hard one for German people. And it would be specifically because of the railways. So the railways have been underfunded basically since the Nazis have come to power, right? They see that they kept cutting resources from that. We described them before, like how they the trains were running covered in like uh, yeah tickets. tickets, yeah. And now the trains have had to be moved off for the purpose of moving troops around. The majority of the army moves by train, not by truck. And what this creates is a shortage of coal. There aren't enough trains to move the coal out of the Ruhr, which is Germany's main coal-producing region, into its cities. On the flip side, at the mine heads, they're producing coal that no one's taking. So you have these enormous piles of coal. Like, I think mean, it's hard to comprehend how big a pile of coal at a mine head at this time was. Um... And eventually they had to stop mining in Germany's main mining area because the piles of coal were so big that it became dangerous. Oh, fucking hell. So again, like, the internal economy of Germany is fracturing and coming it's apart. completely fucking just blown to pieces, isn't it? Like, mm. It's so unbalanced. It's never going to work. Everything has been sacrificed to fight the war. And we hit a new level of control on the steel. So we said previously, like, the art, you know, everything's been designated towards armaments and weapons. Now, the industrial sector and the steel industry itself get their allocation of steel reduced. So the ability to increase plant, the ability to increase production level, now that's going. And the steel industry gets its share of allocated steel reduced to 20% of the pre-war level. Oh, wow. So they're really suffering then. Yeah. So... You know, all this demands increase increase production, more guns, more tanks, more shells. But the steel is hitting a hard cap now. There will not be any new steel factories coming online. Anyway, so Hitler's fuming with his military economic planners because of these shortages. They pump in all of these resources and the army begins allocating it. But for the army professional like planners, it's too late. They are removed from overseeing the military economy and a guy named Fritz Todd, who's the guy who was building the autobahns and the West Wall defences, he gets placed in charge. Exactly as all of these resources come in, obviously the results improve. He claims all the credit. <laughs> of course <laughs> okay, he does. Yeah. This is not the last time this will happen in Germany. A lot of the uh, the understanding we have around who did what and who achieved what in the German economy is completely this effect. Someone gets moved in just as the resources arrive and they claim all the credit. Yeah. Well you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think like when you are a minister in Nazi Germany you do have a strong in- incentive to lie on your performance review. Yeah. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I don't think at this stage it's got to it's just a web of lies isn't it? Everyone's yeah. lying to each other and it's just fucked, man, isn't it? It's like, how do they even get any further than this is flabbergasting? And this isn't the only shortage Germans have. The other thing they have now is a shortage of workers. So we said already, the Nazis had achieved basically full employment through all of these like state schemes, right? Yeah. When they mobilise the army, so they call up all the reservists and the conscripts, no They what jobs. they are doing is taking four million men out of the economy yeah. and putting them in the army. 
Now, one of the things that the kind of the criticisms that the Nazis receive is about like not mobilizing the women as a workforce. Um, definitely, this is something I was taught at school. Like uh, the Nazis kept women at home because they believed their place was having children and being good housewives, which, from an ideological point of view, is true. But the reality is, German women were working. The thing is, German women were already working before the war. One in three of the entire workforce were women. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what they teach that? Because we compare it to the UK. So in the UK, before the war, one in four of the workforce was women. Okay. By 1944, the UK has gone up to 41% of the workforce is women. And, like, obviously, there's a cultural impact. Like, you know, you've seen the pictures of, like, women on production lines. Germany gets up to 51%, but obviously that's kind of a smaller jump, going from one-third to just over 50%, yeah. compared to, like, one-quarter to just under 50%. But the reason that it doesn't appear in the German production, though, and the big difference is where they were working. Six million German women were working on farms, okay. bringing in the harvest. In the UK, less than 100,000 women were working on farms. Oh. And this is the big difference. British agriculture was very uh, mechanised, very, very efficient. Germany's agriculture was a peasant economy, for the yeah. most part. So there was a huge amount of labour stuck on the land not being productively used. Mm-hmm. So, in 1939, then, 14 million women in Germany are working, compared to 6 million in the UK. But we've just removed 4 million men from the workforce. We need another 4 million people, and we're already at one third of women. Like, they are also still being the homemakers and everything else. There is no reserve of labour to tap. Any man that gets called into the army is creating a gap in the workforce. And the military needs, like... It doesn't just need bodies, it needs skilled people. You know, it's 20th century war, you need mechanics, you need fitters, you need electricians. Mm -hmm. And so does the industry. If you don't have these, you're not going to have a production line. And obviously, like, in the most technical roles, like the Navy and the Air Force want to be grabbing those guys to be maintaining ship uh, submarines or airplanes. So it creates kind of another conundrum for the Nazis of... Where are they going to get more people from? And the answer they settled on is Poland. Now, well, they've when... just invaded, so that's obviously yes. a massive increase in population. So it does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I was so thinking po this whole time when you're talking about, it, I was like, well, what are they doing with Poland then? Yeah. So Poland gets divided into three parts, basically. There's obviously the part that is handed over to the Soviet Union in line with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement. There's a part of Poland which goes under like a Nazi puppet government called the General Government. And there's a chunk which is annexed directly into Germany. Like re retaking the former borders plus some mm -hmm. bits they would like to have. <laughs> in the area that is directly annexed, the Nazis explicitly have the target of removing all all Jewish people and as many Polish people as possible from that territory. They want to cleanse it to just be German okay. as far as possible. So what they do is they 
take work workers from this new territory and they assign them to workplaces in Germany, move them into the cities in Germany to go and work on the factories. They are kind of segregated. They have to live in barracks around their workplace. They have to wear a letter P on their on their person so that people can see who they are. They're not allowed to interact with Germans. Uh, if one of them should sleep with a German, the punishment is death. Oh, fucking hell. Um, and they're going to basically tap Poland's population as a labour source. Now, the Germans knew this was fucking illegal. The Nazis knew you can't do this. And they knew. we know that they knew it because of the way that they talked about it. And specifically also how they dealt with the Polish prisoners of war. So, the Polish prisoners of war, as members of like the Polish army, are protected by the Geneva Convention, right? So they have rights yeah. that have to be respected. So the Germans can't take all of these hundreds of thousands of young men that they've like rounded up. So Send them into labour camps. Well, the Geneva Convention presents that. So how do they get round that? Well, the Nazis conclude Poland no longer exists which means these men cannot belong to the Polish army, which means they're no longer prisoner of war, so they must be released. And then they will be immediately converted into forced labour. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, several hundreds of thousands would be taken in this way. Fucking hell. The tragic part of this is, amongst those prisoners of war were 60,000 Jewish uh, soldiers they would be subjected to deliberate policy of overwork and starvation. And so, you know, Poland has been defeated by October of 1939. By the spring of 1940, of those 60,000, 25,000 would be dead. So nearly half Fucking of them. Hell. And this is how Germany got itself through the economic crisis of the winter of 1939. Well, that's fucking a grim fucking way to do it, isn't it? Yeah. And this is the logic that will always come down to the Nazis from here on out is following to its kind of logical conclusion this genocidal hatred of Slavic people and Jewish people. And it took a vicious turn that did, bruv. It did, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's one of the things which I think is absolutely essential to understand in the Nazis is the, the economy of Nazi Germany and the fulfilment of the genocides became one of the same. They realised we can do the genocide by making them work. Yeah. And it became like uh, they became like a a benefit to the Germans of doing it. And this is one of the I think one of the most grim and disturbing things about the Nazis because we're like you know, you're often looking at it and say like, you know, in nineteen forty four the the Allies are closing in and they're still putting all this effort into the concentration camps and because their logic was, well, that's how the production's happening. Like, yeah. the mechanism of the Holocaust is how Germany could continue to fight the war. So, on that cheerful note, I think we'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks. And Thanks for leaving it on that cheerful <laughs> note, mate. I really feel a bit disjointed after that. I was thinking to myself, like, how the fuck... Because we all know, everyone listens to this is going to know that, obviously... In the next few episodes, France gets invaded. Everyone's going to know that. It's not a surprise. Mm. 
but like based off what we've talked about today, I don't understand how that happens. How the fuck does this complete mess of a system beat the French armor? That's I just can't. I know we're gonna get to it, but yeah. I just can't figure it out. Like I'm, I don't think it makes no sense because <laughs> it's fucked. The whole system yeah. is fucked, don't it? I think it's like I still don't spoil too much for next week, but I think for so much of what the Nazis were able to do, the answer is sheer blind luck. Mm. It came into so much of at every step of the way. Like we know we're at the end of six episodes and how many times has Hitler stayed in power yeah. because of luck? <laughs> yeah. You're right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's mad. <laughs> Luckiest man alive, man. Yeah. So yeah, next time then we will look at how Hitler's kind of worst nightmare came true, fighting Britain and France at the same time, and how that actually panned out. In the early days. Nice. Nice, man. Thank you. That's... That was a lot of information there. <laughs> there was a lot going on. It was good though, man. Very well researched as always. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Um, got anything to plug? We've yep. got the X... On the X, everyone. We got the, the X. X us up on X. Which, like, they're now floating to pay a subscription for the X, so we may not be on the X for much longer. What? Oh, to stay on the platform? Yeah, yeah, yeah to be on the platform. Like, yeah. like a sm- it's only a small fee, but I don't trust Elon Musk with my bank details, thank you. Yeah. Um, How much is this small fee? Uh, I think it's like a $10 a year or something like that. It's not okay. much, but I don't trust X with my bank card at oh. all. Um, anyway um, so yes you can follow us on Xitter <laughs> at Makers of History um, you can also reach out to us at uh, on our email wearemakersofhistory at gmail.com if you have any questions anything you would like us to talk about in relation to uh, Nazi Germany or any other history type questions you have yeah, and man. I think that's about all we have. Um, one side note for the Twitter is very unfortunate thing. There's a uh, like a historic reenactment group, like, you know, like living history that go into the schools and like dress up oh, as yeah, Romans, yeah. called Makers of History. And I keep getting tagged oh. by high like primary schools, like, oh, thank you so much for your presentation. Oh, like, I hope you're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're going into Kiki. You shouldn't be listening to this. <laughs> so, makers of history, guys, the dressing up as Romans and Greeks, guys, sorry we keep stealing your internet uh, points. <laughs> I'd be interested in saying them. I like Romans and history and all that. Yeah, maybe that's No, we did it as kids. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. that was cool, man. <laughs> Good times. Right then, see you later, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.